0: So hello, I'm Alex Rockkeen. I'm a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased today to be joined from my shed by Jeff Morgan. And those of you who've seen one of these before will know that what I really want to do is allow the person who I'm talking to to introduce themselves rather than me trying to speak for them. So with that, Jeff, over to you. Um, Give us a little pen picture of yourself, please, or a verbal picture of yourself.
1: Well, thank you, first of all, Alex, for inviting me to be part of this uh, discussion. Um, As may be obvious, I'm an Anglican priest uh, and I deliver spiritual care as a chaplain. I was part of the class of 91 um, and here in a couple of trusts, I'm part of a multi-faith and belief team uh, which supports patients, relatives and staff. But in 2005, um, I, as I like to say, went undercover uh, and became uh, an independent. Well, first of all, I was with an advocacy organisation and was doing what we call professional advocacy. And then um, when the the, um, Mental Capacity Act was getting going, uh, I was with an organisation that was that had piloted uh, uh, IMCAs, and I became an IMCA, and, and sat with that. Um, it was uh, highly interesting, and I uh, felt uh, a worthwhile thing to be doing. And at the same time, uh, from 2007 onwards, when I was active as an IMCA, I started researching uh, by our, by talking to advocates, but also talking to chaplains and service users, and sort of put, joined it all together uh, in a doctorate that I put up uh, with King's College London in 2014, and this sort of developed into a book, uh, spiritual uh, Independent advocacy and spiritual care, uh, which was kind of where we um, met Alex, because you very kindly reviewed uh, this piece of piece of work. Uh, so
0: that's me. Brilliant. Well, thank you. And uh, thanks for mentioning the book because it's, it's, well, that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because it's such an, it's such an interesting book and it's, it brings out so many important aspects, which I hadn't really seen thought about, or at least seen discussed in, in, in all the the other literature about advocacy and all the other literature about thinking about in particular mental capacity matters and in particular the, the spiritual aspects and what I sort of wanted to, to get from you, bluntly, actually, get you, get from you from the, for, the, for the benefit of those people listening to this is, is to spend a bit of time with you digging into those spiritual aspects. And there's a sort of, well, three limbs we could think about. We could think about capacity assessment, we could think about best interests, and then we could think about the role of, of advocacy and support. And I wonder whether the way possibly into it is to, is to start with that last limb about thinking about advocacy, and just to allow you just to, to develop or, or ask you a little bit to develop the the kind of the the theme of that book about independent advocacy and supporting spiritual care, and then we can sort of dig into the very specific, you know, the more specific capacity best interest stuff as we go.
1: Yes, I I think when I became an imca, I was struck by the the sense of mission um that was kind of inherent in the particular organization i was working with then other I mean, people who uh, were quite uh, influential early on were writing about it and exploring what what was happening and uh, and i was presented with what i call the bible the code of practice and in that i noted the paragraph uh, about views preferences beliefs and values um, I also listened to uh, colleague IMCAs who were talking about the fact that they were the only ones there supporting service users, perhaps in an end of life situation in a care home. And and although these were, uh, you know, these were not um, pronouncedly religious people, they, they would <laughs> be very happy for me to say that um, they would like to go into a local church and light a candle. And so I thought. Um, so, so what is happening around those beliefs and values, and are the ways in which we can explore uh, better with people who are, you know, having problems with capacity, um, and fluctuating capacity? Um, and uh, I suppose what I wanted to do was to see whether there was an opportunity for a dialogue between some of the um, inroads that that were being made into, areas of spirituality within psychiatry that I noticed, the, the special interest group for uh, religion or spirituality within the Royal College of Psychiatrists, for example, and there was a, quite a lot of literature um, uh, being thrown up around that, so I, in my literature survey I sort of put that together, um, but I was also aware of um, uh, you know, the, the the need in the mental capacity act to take account of people's beliefs and values, whether they were spiritual or not. So, um, uh, certain aspects coming from psychiatry and from the mental health units uh, that I was working in, as as uh, both as, as an inca, as an advocate and then as a chaplain, um, brought that to the fore. Um, the spiritual Spirituality assessment, for example, and lots of assessments. So I was thinking, well, is there a way in which one could set along set the spiritual spirituality assessment alongside the mental capacity act as, uh, assessment, and in terms of best interest, um, you know, what are the factors which could be built into the best interest assessment around uh, around spirituality, around culture? That are sometimes, as you rightly say, uh, ignored or um, not fully appreciated because it's all about the serious medical treatment, it's all about the long term move. Um, all these kind of belong more properly to the uh, sort of advocacy that the organisations I was working with was doing most at that time, uh, you know, generic or professional advocacy Um, and I've just been talking to a colleague of mine, a former colleague of mine who has been kind of at it for 20 or maybe 30 years and is still in the same organisation. He was explaining that in the old days uh, you would hang out on the street, not (laughs) obviously, but you would meet, you would meet people on the street. Uh, with, with a learning disability who would say or would recount to the friendly uh, professional um, or, or partner uh, you know what was going on and so the individual would say well would you like me to see if i can get a referral for you from our service and whereas um, in those days i mean this is 10 15 years ago most of the uh, work would be in that Um, domain, you know, um, pre-IMCA. Now, he's telling me, you know, this is now down to 5%. Most of it is relevant person representatives, or as I used to call it, dolls imca uh, and even IMCA itself, uh, uh, pure IMCA, because so much has been exported into CARE Act advocacy. Uh, is, is is much fewer and far between, uh, you know, around about 10 up to 10% of, of what they do. Having said that, the service I'm talking about doesn't do mental health advocacy.
0: Um, so, just thinking about that, you you were saying about the tools that you might need, or the, the fact that it appeared to be underdeveloped, um, as regards, I, I really like that term, spiritual assessment, or... Uh, what sort of tools do you think people should be armed with or what sort of tools do you think people can be equipped with to enable someone to to enable someone to sit alongside an individual and and support that aspect either in terms of thinking about their capacity or in terms of their best interests? Yes
1: well I I mean I I think I would commend as I I do in my book um, the work of Former, I mean, she's retired now. uh, uh, Psychiatrist Sarah Eager, E A W G E R, um, and some some other, you know, psychiatrists um, have have done. um, And pointing to, um, I mean, they are assessment tools from the U. S. largely, but they've been sort of brought in via uh, palliative care into into spiritual care and other areas of care. Um, the hope tool, you know, by asking someone what gives you hope, um, uh, do they have any interaction with organised religion or not, what are, um, you know, their, what, if they don't, what is their personal spirituality, what is their sort of uh, personal emotional uh, identity um, and what are, if, if it's to do with ordinary medical treatment, what are your expectations in terms of the treatment, or in terms of the decision that needs to be made, um, and um, if it's about end of life, you know, what are your expectations about end of life? Uh, So uh, those, I mean, they are more developed in the US uh, and in the sort of chaplaincy sector over there because there is um, a greater degree of professionalisation. Uh, around chaplaincy, and it's a moot point about whether um, in in the UK we like that or not. Um, you know, some people go, some people in my profession go for it. Some aren't so aren't so keen. Want to do do our own thing <laughs> in in the good old British way. Um, so um, I, you know, there are there are tools out there, um, and. Uh, I suppose it's about you know, getting alongside people's uh, emotional and pastoral needs, which obviously, as a as a sort of social care professional, as a psychiatric professional, you may not uh, have the time to do it because you need, or even as an input, you 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 need to sort of get on with it. And in in a way, that's where I suppose something like spiritual care provision chaplaincy uh has has a part to play um a lot of the conversations will be very confidential but we can explore people's pastoral and emotional needs so maybe um uh, you know it would be about whether a particular individual or individual's family felt they wanted to get the spiritual leader to have a say i mean this is this would be quite common in decisions around um or organ donation or you know other other forms of treatment um but yes to to sort of bring that bring that bring that across into into the discussion
0: actually which reminds me or maybe may, is reinforcing a point I, I was wanting to ask you which one of the areas I, I find challenging in both in cases I've had, but in, 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 in seeing more widely is where there is that value clash between a professional who's got a specific view of the world. And you've got an individual who may have a very distinct and possibly quite idiosyncratic belief system. And there is that to what extent are we saying that this is well, bluntly pathological? In other words, this means this person can't make the decision. To what extent is this reflecting a different value system?
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, I, uh, from my knowledge uh, 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 and experience, occasionally um, healthcare care professionals in, say, in mental health settings will ask chaplains what uh, this person is expressing, um, you know, I would personally distance myself from it, but um, would you be able to say whether this is consonant with what their beliefs are? So that is quite a powerful position to be put in uh, as a chaplain, isn't it? Um, In what way are any of our uh, um, expressions or decisions consonant with any pattern of, of, of beliefs? Um, but I, I mean, I was interested in one of your um, previous uh, interlocutors, what they were saying about this difference between will and, and preference and the legal niceties there. So there's, I think there's pro- probably more to explore philosophically around that. But um, uh, th- I mean, I think what you say about the, um, the, the myriad uh, of, of experiences that someone who is um you know in a mental health unit receiving treatment or um uh, or, or is in in a situation where they're lacking capacity because they have a uh, a sort of temporary psychosis in a in, in a critical care unit um these' areas where someone who's non-clinical and particularly at this time of uh, in in these times, is able to sort of intervene and, and, and be alongside and support the nursing staff. Um, because if I may say, you know, one of the tragedies of what we're going through with COVID is the fact that uh, people are, too many people are dying alone and are not sort of able to be supported, or even if they're not dying, they're not having the, the emotional support of someone to hold them, um, someone to see. I mean, it's... We do what we can with with virtual um, uh, tools, but uh, that is where it's at. So, um, and I, so I think interestingly, um, if advocates of Inca are people who are actually allowed in. Although I, talking to my colleague, a lot of his RPR work is apparently being done by
0: um, by Zoom or, or yeah. Teams. Yeah, I mean, there's a real, I think there's a, there there are a whole host of really complex issues about supporting, I mean, in, as both in the, as it were, professional dolls assessment work, and then the support work required around things like dolls having to be done remotely. But I mean, the point you pick up on, on the impact on individuals of not being able to have others around them is, I mean, can't be emphasised enough. And I can, I suspect you could speak a considerable and rather eloquent length about how what you're what you are seeing in that context I mean about how how in what a serious impact it is for people to either be dying or be very seriously ill with no one around it must be awful. Uh,
1: and what, and what I've interestingly found is that the good old telephone is um, a lot, it provides a sort of safety valve for people who have um, have really difficult experience you know We've had within the trust I'm in um, uh, at the moment, um, a bereavement support helpline. And uh, from what I can see and hear, people have found it very helpful to be able to talk about the fact that they were not able to be there with their loved one. Um, I mean, it's, it's just a phone call, but people clearly have so much pent up grief and there will be, you know, complex grief that, uh, that kind of derives out of this I should think going, going forward um, but yes it's a, it's a privilege to be alongside people um, and feeling what they feel um, that's kind of the the pastoral angle that we're, we're coming at
0: yeah yeah and uh, there, there are so many other questions I'd like to ask about that but we don't have much more time left and one thing I just wanted to to zero in on just just To think about a little bit more is one of the things which really strikes me is the extent to which, for instance, in care homes, what little differences can make huge differences in individuals' lives. And I just part of that is the support that people might need to express whatever form of spirituality. I mean, it it doesn't matter, you know, which, which form it takes. And I was just wondering whether you whether you've got any insights you were able to share about almost the smallest thing that you have seen in that, which has made a difference, because it can be very easy to say, well, you need to do huge numbers of complicated and things which then make it seem terribly kind of. Oh, my gosh, I can't do that. But it's almost that aspect of there's just the smallest thing, which. I don't know if you can think of any examples of you know almost the smallest um, thing which has made a real difference in this context yes.
1: so, so so i'm not going into care homes myself as part of my uh, i haven't got time uh, as a full-time chap Then, so it's mostly around the acute hospitals but I, I honestly in a way the um, setting doesn't matter
0: it's more just that the,
1: yeah yes so um I mean I, I, I I'm a bit of an irritant um, around mental capacity I suppose you know uh, questions asked what, what you're a chap then, why are you asking about mental capacity so uh, I explain what, what restraint mittens for example if I go around and I see people wearing restraint mittens and I ask well has has adults as a LPS you know assessment <laughs> being made and so forth um, but i mean the little things are of course very big things for uh, for, for frail elderly the glasses um you know uh, have you so many people lose their glasses you know try to ensure that they have a, a an extra pair brought, brought in um uh, i mean i find you know if i talk to a patient then that, often other people will, other members of staff will sort of rally around, but um, there are you know, staff are very busy. Um, a, a recent example is someone who um, you, you learn things as uh, as, a, as a pastoral care about that person, probably through the referral that you get from the in, from from the vicar or the imam or whoever contacts you, so the person lives alone. Um, these the, the sort of social background of the person is 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 important to to bear in mind. Try to while retaining their uh, their confidence, get it over to the the um, the, the, the members of South. um Quite often. <laughs> you'll find a healthcare professional in you know in in, in the, the bed do you want uh, do you want it to be known that you're a former chief executive of the trust <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and so oh no 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 you know so the, the, it's it's about making these sort of connections with people and keeping them live and sort of um, being a little um uh, dis- discreet around um, what they w- would want um, and, and so I, I you know say it's it's about the li- you know the little things are the connections that you make um, but often that they are based on on the practical need of the person so um, you know getting the person sat up in bed or having uh, something something to drink um, um, but yes I uh, frequent you know, not infrequently will I be asking have they had a capacity assessment and, and, and so forth. Whether that's
0: my role or not, I don't know. Well, if I if I may respectfully say so, long may you continue to be an irritant in terms of asking those questions, because sometimes actually, and, and it could be anyone in your position, actually just asking a question, well, have you thought about that person's capacity? Or, you know, why is that restraint being carried out? I mean, it's it, Merely because you see it and it's happening doesn't mean it should be. If you seem to mean so, yes. yeah, yes, Absolutely. brilliant. Well, Jeff, thank you. I really do appreciate it. I, there are, as I said, I, I would. Like, there are lots and lots of things I'd like to dig into, but we try and keep these to roughly twenty minutes, just because I know people's well. Frankly, attention spans at the moment there is you know we, it's so difficult to find time to concentrate on things. But I'll put the link up to the book, um, and also before we came on, as it we were, on air, you mentioned a very interesting article as well in in the context of acquired brain injury. So I'll put a link. I'll put a link up to that. And thank you very much indeed for your time, Jeff. I'm now going to thank you for me. Great, thank you.